This is Isaac Morehouse. Welcome to the podcast where we discuss education, entrepreneurship, big ideas, how to put them into practice in the real world, and above all, how to live free. How do you learn to play basketball? You don't sit in classrooms and study it. You don't bother about the technique of your elbow or the spin on the ball in a jump shot until and unless you have actually played. The greatest players, how do they play? How do they improve? They play all the time. They practice, they scrimmage, they play games, they play pickup games. They've been doing this for years. They engage with the game by playing it. Then they don't stop there. The good players might stop there. They might just play a lot. The great players also reflect on what they've done. They're not just theorizing and studying in the abstract. They're theorizing and studying the actual specifics of the actual game that they've played. They study game film of teams that they just played to see what they did well and what they did poorly. They study game films of teams they're going to play. They watch themselves play on film. They analyze their shot. In the offseason, they study what our defense is doing to them and what new moves can they develop and adapt to respond to that. They work with specialists and strength coaches. They, they apply theory, but it's always in the context of actual practice. It's that constant, perpetual practice, practice theory, practice, practice theory. That's how real mastery comes about. So if you want to master your career, you want to become an entrepreneur, a marketing expert, you want to learn sales, you want to learn how to thrive in the world of business. How are you supposed to do that? Spending all of your time theorizing, shielded from the real world, being taught primarily from people who are scared of it and have never engaged in it. You need to get out of the classroom. You need to learn by doing. Praxis is set up to do exactly that. It's the same way you master any kind of sport or any performance, anything at a very high level, that practice, practice theory setup is exactly what we do. We put you into businesses and startups where you are practicing, you are creating value on the ground in the real world. And then every day, every week, you are reflecting on that. You're going through a self-guided curriculum, a set of challenges and projects to improve yourself, to identify areas of weakness and say, how can I improve this? To identify areas of strength and saying, how can I leverage this further? You're working with our coaches, just like you would with a strength coach or a conditioning coach or an offensive or defensive coach to improve specific aspects of your game, of your career, of your life. Practice and theory combined in less than one year for a net cost of zero, you will become a master at your craft in the world of business. Discoverpraxis.com. Check it out today. Today, I am joined by Robin Hansen. Uh, Robin is one of the most interesting and interested people, uh, I would say, thinkers around today, anywhere. And he is a professor of... Robin, actually, what are you a professor of? Because you seem to study everything. But economics is where I am. Okay, so you're an economics professor, um, but you have a, a lot of knowledge and background in a great many things, from physics to computer science. Is that right? 
Sure. I, I started out in engineering, then I switched to physics, uh, then I got a bachelor's and a master's in physics, and I did a master's in philosophy, then I did nine years of computer research, and then I went back to school in social science. I did well in the political science market. I did some health policy, but I finally got my job in an economics department and tenure there. So, so, uh, so academia doesn't really care what all the other things you've done. They really only care about the one thing you seem to be best at. Yeah, so. yeah. Well, there's sort of two stories going on there. One is obviously you're relentlessly curious about a great many things, but the fact that you sort of pursued those in a, a many of them in kind of a formal way tells me, I don't know, were you, were you trying to figure out how to take which one of those interests you wanted to careerify or, or what was that process? I wasn't very career focused initially. So, uh, I just studied what was interesting to me. Uh, you know, if you, if you get accepted into schools, you can just keep studying things and, uh, you change your mind, you study something else. And, uh, then I got interested in computers and I went out and got jobs, but they were kind of like school in that I was learning a lot about, uh, computer science and artificial intelligence. Uh, but then eventually I, uh, the, you know, the learning slowed down on the job and I started to study things like institutions and I thought I had ideas I wanted the world to hear and I realized I did not have credentials and contacts. And so uh, there I was all alone with things to say, no, no one to tell them. <laughs> and so I decided to go back to school to get contacts and credentials. And this time I was serious about making a career out of it. So I started graduate school at the age of 34. Okay. Wow. So that's, that's kind of <laughs> fairly late for graduate school typically, correct? Absolutely. So I, w I want to get into um, the main topic I want to cover is your new book, which will be out uh, June 1st, The Age of M, and that's E-M. Um, and I really like, that's that's the bulk of what I want to talk about. But oh, go ahead. It's actually shipping now just to make you know, Oh, it is shipping now. It's been shipping for a week. So wonderful. Uh, get it and order it. Good, good. OK, The Age of M. So you can go go check it out. Um, just before we get into that, just a couple other things I want to touch on. And, and there's so much when I was kind of doing some, some background for the show, I thought, man, I need to do multiple episodes. We got to bring you back sometime because there's so many interesting things you've, you've dabbled in, but, um, I'm around. I'm available. <laughs> what'd you say? I'm available. Uh, I love it. We will, we will definitely do so. You, so you, you mentioned you had ideas, but you didn't have the credentials and that's something that I've heard you talk on right on before the, um, the concept of signaling, and I kind of think the higher education market, and certainly your colleague uh, Brian Kaplan, has a lot to say about this. But it's a lot of it is about signaling. So, did you sort of say, all right, um, even if I know stuff now and I have interesting things to say, I need to have something that signals I'm worth listening to? Uh, was that a hard like? I, I know that's frustrating for a lot of people and they feel like it's wasteful. Why should I have to pay all this money or all this time? Graduate school, maybe you're not paying, but just to get this signal. Um, but signals are not good or bad. They just are. It, did you sort of approach it deliberately from, from that kind of perspective? Honestly, I don't really remember what I was thinking about that long ago. I just knew I needed to do this to get what I wanted, which was some attention. I didn't think through the whole world. Uh, very much at that level. It took me a long time to understand signaling at, at a broader uh, level of, as a social equilibrium. Uh, but I would say, uh, you know, now I'd understand that the people to blame are, in essence, the uh, fakers. So, you know, if it's also the same for, say, telling people some unusual, a contrarian thing. So 
if you know obviously if you tried to tell people that you knew about ufos or ancient astronauts or esp or any other sort of hard to believe thing you know you think you have big news uh the world doesn't want to hear the main reason is that there are so many people out there who are so sloppy as thinkers who say things like that that's what you're trying to distinguish yourself from if, if, if nobody who ever talked on these subjects unless they you know told the truth and, and had a solid lead then of course people wouldn't be skeptical hmm. and you wouldn't have to work so hard to overcome people's skepticism your blog overcoming bias uh is uh, now i gotta admit i haven't kept up with it in the last few years but there was a period of several years there where i checked it every day it was absolutely my go-to it's a, it's a phenomenal blog how would you describe what it is that overcoming bias is about well it has been several things over the years so it was started almost 10 years ago now the anniversary will be in november uh initially i started out myself and then i quickly tried to recruit other people to make it into a group blog which it did become and so then overcoming bias was this common theme obviously we were talking about topics of common interest but there was this general idea that uh, once we realize that our minds are not, you know, perfect analytical machines just designed to produce accuracy, that they have all these other systematic characteristics that, that lead us in other directions, it's kind of scary because you realize you've been relying on all these thoughts in your head for a long time. <laughs> You're kind of tempted to keep relying on them, and here's something showing you they're not really that reliable. Uh, uh, it, it seems to be a priority, like figure that out and fix it. So uh, that other people shared that intuition, and so that became the, the common theme there. Uh, after a while, uh, you know, some other people left the blog. Uh, one of my main co-bloggers, Eliyukowski, was uh, started a, a different blog called Less Wrong that was popular for a few years. Was that was that in reference to you and overcoming bias? Oh no, no. <laughs> this is like no, a dramatic no, falling out. No, no schism or anything. No, he just he wanted to he, he basically wanted to make a certain kind of software system where people voted and had karma and then. And then that sort of selected among a wider group of people to contribute. So there was an experiment in some in crowdsourcing, basically. Yeah, yeah. Um, so which had success for a while, and then not so much success, but um, it's still an experiment. So you're, you know, I, I've always wondered this, and there's a lot of potential, I, I guess, answers for it, uh, or maybe there isn't an answer. I don't know. But how would you deal with or explain the human ability to both have these mental biases that um you know make us perceive the world in ways that are often really inaccurate but also be able to have the awareness of those biases it seems like like a brain that is that has these biases that are sometimes pretty um you know pr pretty bad i mean or pr you know for, cause us to see the world in ways that are pretty wildly inaccurate but yet to be able to be aware of those biases uh, th does that at all seem paradoxical to you? Um, not especially. That is, um, you know, to the extent our minds are mildly general, they have some relatively general capacities. It would be hard to block, uh, you know, thoroughly this sort of uh, thinking about that issue. But I do think we have enough social cues and other processes that discourage people from acting on that sufficiently. So even though people can realize it and sometimes do, uh, they're easily distracted. Uh, um, let's let's get into look a colorful thing over there, a plane. <laughs> let's talk about that. Let's uh, 
<laughs> now I feel like now I feel like saying, look, let's talk about your book is uh, is me getting <laughs> getting distracted by a shiny object. Um, let, but let's talk about your book, The Age of M. Uh, this book Which is, is a shiny object. I got to admit, it's a nice shiny cover. I like it. It is. It is a it's a great cover. And, and this is it's kind of a prediction. You're kind of predicting what the future will look like. Um, and that's a dangerous thing. But you 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 know, say that you feel relatively comfortable making at least, um, you know, some, some of these general predictions. And that is the future of robots or artificial intelligence or, um, emulation is what you're, what M is short for. So get- it's a conditional prediction. So I'm saying there are several possible ways we could eventually have machines as smart as people. And there's one way that I've identified that other people have talked about for a long time. And I'm going to focus on that and tell you conditionally, if that's the first way we get smart robots, then what happens? So the book isn't very much about convincing you that this is the way it's going to happen first. It's just enough for me that many people have been talking about it for a while. And I think people should get beyond talking about which thing might happen first and talk about what happens if they do happen first. (laughs) What does the world actually look like? Uh, I've been frustrated that people have neglected that question compared to other more philosophical questions is um is emulation would that be similar to what's called general ai or is this something different um it different by the way people talk about it uh that is the the question is how you end up with machines that are as smart as people uh obviously humans are machines so we 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 mean artificial machines made in factories and uh, there are several ways that could happen uh, one way is that we uh, just write software the way we've been doing for 70 years, and we just slowly accumulate more of it until it's good enough to do most everything. That software wouldn't have to be general, though. That is, it wouldn't have to be very abstract. It could just be lots of little tools. Uh, another so, approach, so written to do specific functions. Or, right. Or, okay. Exactly. Uh, then you might imagine that we will have more progress more successfully faster if we instead of have lots of specific things we try to be more general now so far that's mostly failed that is we aren't very good at making general software but we could still keep working on it maybe we'll come across some new insights that will make it easier so that's another approach but that's still writing software but maybe it's writing more general software the approach that I'm focused on though is analogous to porting software so today if you have a piece of software on an old computer and you want software like that to run on a new computer, one thing you could do is just stare at the software, stare at how it seems to be working and what it seems to do, and then try to abstract from that some concept of how it works and then write new software on the new machine that seems to be like the software in the old machine. That's kind of what we've been doing with the human brain. But another approach that's often used, if you've got software running on an old machine and you want it to run on a new machine, you write what's called an emulator. You write software on the new machine that makes the new machine look like the old machine to the software. Hmm. Put a little piece in between. So to do that, you don't need to understand the old software. All you need to do is understand the new and the old machine and how they work, Hmm. Uh, but not all the software on top of it. So the idea is to do that for the human brain. So uh, to make an emulation, we need three kinds of technologies to be good enough, and none of them are good enough yet. One is we just need lots of cheap, fast, parallel computers. Another is that we need to take individual human brains and we need to scan them in fine detail to see just what's where. And third, we need to have computer models for every type of cell in the brain. And a computer model is something that takes input signals, changes internal state, sends output signals. And if the model of a cell 
is good enough, i.e. close enough to the original signal processing behavior of the cell, and we have good enough models for all the kinds of cells in the brain, and we have a good enough scan to tell us which kinds of cells are where connected to what, with what strength, etc. Then, uh, if we try to make a model of this whole brain, that is, we're modeling each cell, and we do that for all 10 billion cells. Are you talking about a physical model or a, yes, a computer model? Software uh, model. So, software model, right? Gotcha. Well, I mean, it could, could be realized at various levels of hardware to optimize it, but you know, the key concept is it's on a computer. Okay. And if you have a good enough model, then the good enough model will have the same input-output behavior as the original brain. Mm -hmm. What that means is you hook, hook it up with hands and eyes and ears and mouth, and then you could talk to it, and it would react exactly the way the original would to the same input hmm. and send the same output. So it would talk back the same way. You might ask it to do a job, and it might do it. And if this computer model is cheap enough, it would be cheaper than the human workers who do the same sort of thing that it can do, and so it would outcompete them. Am I interviewing Robin Hansen or your emulated... <laughs> robot. Well, of course. The whole point is, it wouldn't be able to tell the difference. There, there wouldn't be a useful difference. That is, if the if the thing I'm interacting here is just a, a Skype call, uh, then an emulation would react to that in exactly the same way as I would. Uh, it's not any different sort of input, and you'd get the same output. So, so this. Correct me if I'm wrong, because I'm I'm following you, and then I'm kind of fuzzy on one part, and that is. It sounds like you're talking about starting with scanning the the physical human brain and then yep. getting from that something that can be replicated in a software, um, you know, a non-physical sort of, you know, space. So, so what are we what are we getting from that physical scan that tells us well, something that can be programmed into a piece of software? Every, every computer is physical. Okay. But so. but if you scan, but if you took apart my computer and sort of scanned in detail uh, the motherboard, would that allow you to recreate Windows software? If you scan the memory and could read in each memory what bit was there, yes. Okay. Okay. Yes. So the, this the is the thing. limits of my knowledge on this stuff. This is good. So so it's really it's really a your your approach is saying since our brains are contained within a physical space, uh, everything that happens there has some kind of physical um, signal that it creates or some kind of evidence of what's going on. So if we start by mapping the physical side of it, that's how we're actually going to figure out how to make software that can do these same things. Yeah. Okay. I mean, most real comp computers are designed to make it easy to move data in and out. You know, they got a port or an internet connection, and so you can move files into them and put them in the memory and then execute them, or you can move the files out. The human brain doesn't have those ports. It's a computer. It's running software. Uh, it's changing bits, but it doesn't have a port to let you read all that bits out. It's not designed for that. So we're going to have to go read the bits the hard way by you know, scanning the hardware itself and looking at each part. Um so do you think there's any any and again I know I know you said the technology's not ready to do this yet anyway and I don't want to make you like accountable to answer every question about this not yet existent technology but I, is there is there I guess are there people who are skeptical of scanning each of these layers or each of these parts and knowing the parts will be sufficient that that sort of is the whole greater than the sum of the parts or is there some sort of you know ghost in the machine that you can't 
that you can't get to by just breaking each part down and getting at its at its detail. Does that does that question even make sense to you? Well, it depends on whether you're challenging like basic physics or you're talking about what approximations are good enough. Whichever one's more interesting. <laughs> I don't think I'm challenging basic physics. If you physics. believe basic physics, then we believe that, you know, if you believe that everything you are is actually your brain, that your brain is running and changing and that's who you are, then all of the things that make you up are in your brain somewhere and then they have to be somewhere and we can look at each part and see each part, then it's got to be in the sum of all those parts. Now, the brain is enormously complicated. So we have to look at all the parts. It's it's a lot. It'll take a very long time. So the hope is that like other signal processing systems, most of that stuff is irrelevant. So hmm. we've actually already done decent emulations of parts of our sound hearing system and our sight, our eye system. Uh, and when we did that, what we found, uh, as with most signal processing systems, is that there were a limited number of key degrees of freedom where the signals were channeled and stored, and most of the rest of the physical system was there as infrastructure support, but it didn't actually, it wasn't actually involved in the signal processing. Uh, so that's the idea for the brain too. The, the brain is a huge biological object. Each cell is enormously complicated. But the idea is what the brain does mainly is to send signals around and the parts of the brain cells that do that are much more limited. So we don't have to look at everything. We can just look at parts that manage signals. And that's what we found with eyes and ears. They're still more enormously complicated, but the parts that handle signals are, are much smaller and simpler. I mean, even the same way for a muscle, right? Muscles are enormously complicated. There's a lot going on in all those cells, but the key thing a muscle does is very simple. Uh, I have heard, I don't remember where I heard this, someone who was talking about the different approaches to AI um, and you kind of outlined uh, earlier, you know, building software to do specific things that, you know, then hopefully make it more and more complex and people are taking these different approaches. It sounds like the approach that you are talking about is something like, uh, I wish I could remember where I heard this, but it, it, it was described as, you know, okay, the Wright brothers, when they wanted to make uh, a plane, yes, they did study birds. But, you know, if we want to make intelligent machines, we'll want to study the human brain about as much as the Wright brothers studied birds, which is quite a bit. But it wasn't they didn't exactly duplicate um, the physical, you know, uh, characteristics of birds in order to make human flight. It, so how would you respond to that? I don't know if it's a criticism, but or an observation that, yes, the human brain, we can study and emulate it to a degree, but there's just something fundamentally different with machines or software, or there's limitations to that? How does that birds and airplanes analogy sit with you? I would say it comes down to how essentially simple a system is or how complicated it is. So there are some kinds of simple systems where the essential thing going on can be described in a very simple way once you understand it, and then you could just use that simple understanding to make a replacement that's very different. Not all systems are like that. There are many systems where the essential thing going on is just a lot of detail, hmm. and a small, simple principle just won't capture most of it. Uh, we know many symptoms, systems that are just full of complexity that are just very hard to replace. So it's going to be a long time before anybody can make an artificial bacterium that's vastly simpler than a real bacterium. They are basically, they have to do a lot of different things and do them well, and you can't make a replacement unless you do all those little things well. This is also true today of, of a body, a biological body or a species 
or a firm or a uh, whole city or a nation. Um, you know, you, if you took a successful city today, uh, you can't abstract a small number of principles such that you can go out in the middle of the desert and make a new city that's even better based on those principles. <laughs> what makes a city powerful is having lots and lots of valuable detail. And the brain is honestly, most people have reported, one of the most complicated things we've ever seen. Now, it could be all that complexity is misleading, and there's a very small number of powerful principles that are as simple as aerodynamics for wings. And once we understand those simple principles, we can throw away all the complexity and just deal with the small number of simple pieces. But I just don't believe that's going to happen. I don't believe it's one of those systems where there is a small number of simple details. I think you just need to know a lot to be able to be smart. So let's let's move on to sort of the, the predictions we've got so we've got this ability to emulate the human brain and what are going to be the changes that start to happen what's the what's the world going to look like once we can emulate human brains cheaply uh enormous numbers of things change uh so this happens sometime roughly in the next century not necessarily the next few decades so we're not talking about something around the corner but when it does happen, it happens all of a sudden. So within a period of, say, five years, the world economy changes from doubling every 15 years like it does now to doubling every month or faster. Within that time period, with say a five-year time period, humans all must retire. They all lose their ability to earn wages by working. Then. They own other things. They might own real estate, uh, stocks, patents. All of those assets, they quickly increase in value. If the economy doubles every month, their assets double every month. So humans get rich very quickly, at least collectively. Overall, humans own most of this economy, and so overall they get very rich. But many individual humans may not own very much besides their ability to earn wages, and then they'll are in trouble. Unless they have arranged to share or ensure, they could starve. Uh, that's the humans. Now, if the economy is doubling every month or faster, then this entire new era may only last a year or two before something else happens. And in that year or two, other than the fact they all lost their jobs and got rich, the humans can't change very much. There's just not time in a year or two for human society to change very much. They can't have a lot of babies. They can't change their culture and ideology, etc. They're just pretty much like they were, except for losing their jobs and getting rich. The robots, however, everything changes for them. Very quickly, the robot wages fall to the simulations, excuse me, very quickly the robot wages fall to subsistence levels for the robots. That means they're working most of the time and via working they earn just barely enough to survive. And that means most of what they're doing is creating the bare minimum needed to survive. So they're making new computers, they're feeding them with energy and cooling and structural support and communication and they're repairing them. Uh, they're buying real estate to put them on. This is what they're spending almost all of their effort doing, uh, making the minimum needed to exist and survive. So, so why, why would the walk me through why the wages would fall to subsistence? I'm trying to think of an analog in history where let's say you have a uh, a boom of um, births. So you have a, a jump in population and maybe the population, because they have better nutrition, things like that, 
they're maybe uh, smarter or healthier, or more productive somehow. That that hasn't led to, you know, the 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 more we have sort of this Julian Simon idea, humans are the ultimate resource. So the more you have uh, growth in population in a healthier, more productive population, you don't see wages drop to subsistence level because they're they're creating more and producing more interesting and creative things to sort of you know. Uh, to, it's not it's not like this race to the bottom, I guess. How would this differ? Do you follow? You're focused on the last 200 years. <laughs> Before 300 years ago, pretty much everybody in history lived at subsistence level. Right. Subsistence level is the usual case for human history, and pretty much all animals have ever lived at subsistence level. The, the key idea is, can we grow wealth faster than we can grow population? When we grew wealth very slowly, uh, then population could easily grow fast enough to keep up with the wealth and that kept typical income levels down near subsistence i.e within a factor of two of subsistence once we started to kickstart the industrial economy it could grow faster than we grew people so that meant the wealth per person increased uh, and it will continue to increase as long as we can grow wealth faster than we can grow people that's based both on how fast we can grow wealth, but also on how slowly we can grow people. In the emulation economy, they can grow substitutes for people really fast. They can grow it faster than they can grow the economy. So maybe it'd be more they, like the current, I don't know, wealth per um, per you know unit of computing power is, I would imagine, I don't know this, but it, sure. it's probably dropping Falling. per unit Absolutely. of computing power. Absolutely. Okay. So, so these because we're growing computing power faster than we're growing the economy. Right, right, and and so these emulations, these these uh, robots. When you say robots, it gets me really excited because now I'm picturing these robot bodies and all this sci-fi stuff. So, is this, yeah. are these living in, like, is it purely software form moving around from whatever hardware is necessary, or do you foresee? Okay, here's an individual. Um, emulated human brain in an individual human-like body of some kind. What are we talking about here? So the, the working assumption, again, is that driven down to a subsistence economy, so they're spending most of their time working, and in an advanced economy like ours, most jobs are desk jobs. They're office jobs. So most of the emulations are working most of the time, and when they're working, most of them are sitting at a desk. Now, there's very little point to giving them a physical desk. <laughs> that doesn't increase productivity much. You might as well give them a virtual reality desk. So at work, they're mostly in virtual reality. In virtual reality, to them, it looks like our bodies. It could. There's no reason why it can't look just as vivid and real as our bodies look like in real reality. But it, in fact, would be a virtual reality, and so therefore a lot cheaper to create and maintain. Now, in leisure time, probably pretty much all of them would go to virtual reality because it's probably just a lot more fun. <laughs> Some of them would have physical bodies because they would do physical jobs. And though on the job, they might drive a truck or run a factory or, you know, manage a forest. And in those roles, they need to be away from the concentrations of other computers and they need to be focused on particular physical things. And so uh, they would have a body. Now that brain doesn't have to sit inside the body if there's data centers near enough that they can just teleoperate the body. But if they're far enough away from the typical data centers, yes, it might be more convenient just to stick the brain inside the body. And those ones would look more like we do today, but that's actually pretty rare. Most of them will be concentrated in a small number of very dense cities. 
And in those cities, they're pretty much all sitting in server racks and data centers, uh, basically living in a virtual reality that they experience as beautiful and gorgeous and pleasant and full of interesting people, but physically they're sitting in a data rack. So I heard you say uh, on a TED talk about this book and this, this concept that it wouldn't just be any old brain that is emulated. You're not going to just pick a random human brain and say, let's, let's, you know, scan this and turn it into a, a robot. It would be those selected with the highest intelligence or the best work ethic or the, the things most suitable for um, getting the, the most productivity and value out of these robots. And you said, you know, may, there, there might only be a hundred, 150 or so different personalities or brain types that these robots are uh, walking around with or virtually walking around with. Um, Explain a little bit more there. I, I I follow that a bit, but but I also think about how as the world changes, it's you can't predict what kind of traits and personalities like people today who are physically weak um, but highly imaginative would have been useless in an agrarian society or not useless but far of far lower value. No one would have said, oh, we want to breed more like them. Uh, you know, they can't they can't do any of the physical work, but. Fast forward, there are traits that are now valuable. Would, would that not be the same with robots? I mean, wouldn't they say, well, you know, we want a lot of different kinds of traits and personality types because we don't know what the future is going to look like. And there may be things that we, um, you know, aren't selecting for now that will become valuable then. Does that make sense? Well, so again, this whole era only takes a year or two. And during that time, <laughs> I keep, when you say era, I keep thinking of it of like a hundred years. <laughs> well, from the point of view of the typical emulation who runs roughly a thousand times human speed, this era would last thousands of years. Huh. But from the point of view of the typical human, it's only a year or two. So in this time for a year or two, the humans hardly change. So they're all pretty much available. So if you don't scan a human now, he'll be available in a year to scan later. If you need him, it's not like he's going to change that much. So there's no particular reason to be in a rush to scan people who don't seem to be especially promising at the moment for fear they'll disappear. They're, they're not going to disappear. Uh, so in most product markets today, they're actually dominated by a small number of producers. Um, and the idea is that labor markets become like product markets because uh, a single supplier can supply the whole market as with most other kind of product markets. And so we move from uh, a situation of high diversity in labor markets, higher more than really employers want, <laughs> to a situation where they can have roughly the actual diversity they want. That just reminded me, I mean, the number of, I talked to a lot of business owners and entrepreneurs, and it's totally common to hear something like, oh, you know, so-and-so, she is my best worker. She's amazing. If I could have five of her, uh, <laughs> there you go. Uh, you'll be able to, to, to have five right. of your best worker. Exactly. And that's the same way, you know, today, most people buy, you know, one of the top five phones or one of the top five fast food places, or et cetera. Uh, again, we, we mostly choose one of the top few suppliers for most product categories. So we haven't done that for labor just because it's been hard to copy laborers and, and to mass produce them. But M's in a world where you can mass produce a laborer. Uh, you can make as many copies as the market wants, and the market tends to want a lot of the best. So if this is an era of a couple years, and, and your case for that is essentially that you know you can just see the, the trajectory of you have these 
sort of explosive eras of growth and they get larger and shorter. Um, you know, the, the growth is more significant in magnitude, but the duration of the, the explosion is shorter. And then you add computing power to it and you can see this happening very, very quickly. Um, a massive growth in, I guess, productivity and wealth in a very short period of time. So this short era, what happens? Like, is there an end to this era? What, what, what comes next? Do humans go extinct? Well, the, the simple answer, especially from the point of view of this book, is I don't know. <laughs> I thought it was ambitious enough to try to be the guy who summarized the next great era after ours that is as different from our era as our era is from the farming or foraging eras, which are the three eras so far of humanity, industry, farming, and foraging. So if there's a fourth era, it seems dramatic and important to think it through. Uh, but of course, there could be a fifth or sixth. And... I'm not at all going to tell you about the entire future of the universe for the next trillion years. I think some people get confused and think the future is a single place in time and you just describe it and you're done. <laughs> the future will have many places and times and be as complicated and varied as the past has been. Uh, there have been many times and places in the past that were different from each other. So uh, you shouldn't think about describing the entire future. You should think about describing a part of it. And that's this is the part I picked the emulation era. What do you think about the fear that humans have? You know, if, if, if you say to someone, uh, even if it's like a million in a million years or in a thousand years, maybe whatever, a hundred years, humans will human, you know, the human race will be extinct. People feel this immediate urge that this is terrible and they have to do something about that. Do you think that is an irrational bias. Like if I'm not even going to be existing, then I don't even know what that means. Maybe that would be an improvement, uh, in the universe. Um, why, why am I so concerned about the human race in 10,000 years? Is, is that irrational or is that, um, is that really the thing that makes life worth living and humans what we are? I, I really say the actual typical reaction is more the opposite. <laughs> I think people want to, act like they care about the future it seems callous and selfish to uh stated versus revealed preferences <laughs> to say that you don't care much about the future but i think in fact most people don't really care much about the future uh, they might care about their children and their children's lives and as far as their grandchildren but after that it fades really fast uh, so i mean even books about futurism or movies about future science fiction uh there's a standard story which i think is roughly right that uh People mostly like those things as either metaphors about today, they like to use the future to talk indirectly about today, or as just fantasy settings, places to tell fantastic stories you can't prove are wrong. You know, long ago, the place you set fantastic stories was far away, but farther away than anybody had ever seen, who you can't prove what happens there. Now that we can see a really long way, we can't do that anymore. So now we have to set our fantastic stories in the future. And that's where we do. Do you, um, this is interesting. So I'm, I'm trying to think about, I'm, I'm thinking about this, this world with these robots and how much does it actually, so, so if there are robots that, you know, if I could be talking to a robot, Robin Hanson right now, um, does this really change that much? Like maybe in some ways it doesn't change the human experience as radically as you might imagine, the first thing you think of it, all these robots all over the world is like, you know, this, these machines marching through the streets and talking in zeros and ones. And, you know, we're, we're like 
all the humans are living in some, <laughs> in some, I don't know, we're wealthy, but we're, we're, you know, trapped and we have nothing to do. But if, if the emulations are emulating humans really effectively from my individual perspective, maybe it doesn't make a difference. Now, what kind of bodies they inhabit, I guess, is, is the, the big difference. But how, what are the things that maybe will be more the same uh, or less different than people might expect? Well, first of all, I think um, when we look back toward the past, we tend to see more of a similarity and identity than we do when we look to the future. Hmm. Uh, we all feel that we know the past was our ancestors, and we know we have some similarities and some distant differences with them, but we tend to paper over the differences and emphasize our similarities so we can see ourselves as being basically the same people as the past. When people look forward to the future, I think they see more possibilities and they're more willing to disapprove of the future people as not being them. They're more willing to emphasize differences. So I think our ancestors, if they had been described, given, told about us and our world, they would have been more tempted to see us as different and even not human. Hmm. We really are quite alien from our distant ancestors in so many ways. We've gotten used to really some quite alien environments and some strange habits and our minds are even different in so many ways because of the technology we use in the world we live in. Uh, they would have been more willing to see us as strange. And so th those are, again, whether it seem is strange or not is partly whether you let yourself see it as strange. And so these emulations are more different in ways, but you have to realize they are different from you in big ways, just like you are really big, greatly different from your ancestors. There's a number of sort of wishful thinking things people have about the future, uh, and I think you know this takes away from some of those wishful visions. But many people have been you know hopeful by the fact that we've been getting rich lately per person, and they've been looking forward to a future where per person wealth continues to increase. And in this scenario, that just doesn't happen. Uh, per person wealth, at least for the robots, falls back to subsistence level in the same way it's been historically. So we revert to the historical trend there. Uh, and that go, many things go along with that. So people, again, they're working more. People have been hopeful to have less and less work, <laughs> more and more leisure, more and more of what we do determined by our values and our, by our leisure inclinations and, and our greatest hopes. But these people are doing more just to survive. Okay, so you referred to the robots. I noticed this subtle switch in your language uh, as people, which is cool. I, I like that. Um, you said some people will be doing more and more just to survive, uh, referring to the the emulations. That makes me think what what happens in terms of sort of rights or uh, laws, social and and uh, legal institutions in a world populated primarily by robots. They sort of integrate seamlessly and, and assume the same kind of um, rights and relationships in social institutions, or is there some sort of segregation between you know the humans and the robots uh, and, and different types of laws? What do you foresee institutionally? So I teach law and economics, uh, taught two classes of that last semester, and so uh, we understand that law isn't just the static thing that's determined by some universe. Uh, law adapts to cultures and societies, and uh, it tends to change as circumstances change. So this is a really big change, so you have to expect law will change to adapt and incorporate uh, this new world uh, and the new circumstances in it. 
Uh, nevertheless, there's no particular reason it has to be a different law for M's and a different law for humans. It's probably better off for humans if they share a legal infrastructure uh, because then uh, that, they can use that to, say, safely retire and live off their retirement investments. Uh, these are all perfectly reasonable possibilities. Now, some areas of law we know of as not very well determined by the features of the world. And slavery is really one of those things. Uh, slavery has always been possible, and it's still possible right now. There's no reason why our world can't have slaves. We, we don't, but we could. So I can't very much guarantee you there won't be slaves in this future. It's certainly another possibility. I can tell you that when we study the past, we see eras where when labor was plentiful and land was scarce, wages fell to subsistence levels. And in those eras, there wasn't that much point in owning a slave because it cost as much to feed a slave as it does to hire an independent laborer. Uh, the point, the times when you wanted to own slaves was when wages were well above subsistence. That's where it cost you a lot less to feed a slave than it does to hire a laborer. So the M era is more like the era where there's not so much point in owning slaves. I still can't tell you there won't be slaves, but I can just tell you there's less of a pressure to do so. So are the, you know, the these, the robots are created by someone. Um, are they owned by someone in perpetuity, or is it sort of like children? You have a child, and you're kind of responsible for that child for some point, and then the child is sort of a, an autonomous individual in the eyes of society and there are obvious reasons for this that that, and that these institutions have emerged because it works well how do you foresee that that transition so you, you copy let's say we take your brain we put it into and we give it a physical robot body uh you know and you've got this this robot walking around and um it's got robin hansen's brain and maybe some researchers produced it does does somebody own it um what what is that sort of legal arrangement? Because it's kind of like these are products, but they're also human beings in a way. How does how does that process emerge in, in your you, you know? You have prediction? to realize this is a choice. We don't just look it up and do what the law says. The law could say many different things here. There are many possible property rights regimes that could apply this way. Right. What, really what do you think is most likely to emerge? Right. Well, the most likely to emerge thing is the thing that's most efficient. And there are two key efficiency considerations here to keep in mind. One efficiency consideration is that all else equal, people are probably more motivated to work hard and to uh, succeed, etc., if they are cell phone than if they're slaves. Being a slave is probably a, a bit of a downer in terms of motivation. So all else equal, you probably rather be a slave, make them independent owner agents, but still make them have to work hard because they uh, need to pay things. So you could make an M be an independent agent, but say it's renting the hardware it uses for its brain. That means when it can't make its rent, it might get evicted. <laughs> so it might be concerned about getting evicted from its brain because that's pretty much being ended. And so it might want to work hard to make sure it doesn't get evicted. Uh, maybe it takes out loans to pay for its creation, to pay for its training, and now it needs to pay those loans or it might get repossessed. Uh, and so on one end, you'll want to give it, you know, the freedom to, uh, to feel uh, free and therefore be more motivated. On the other hand, you do want it to feel a little threat that if it's too lazy and too much of a slacker, uh, it will in fact uh, lose out. Uh, and so that's why 
you probably, you know, you might just, you know, create a child and give him 20 years worth of expenses, you know, to, to do anything at once for the next 20 years and then see what it does. But on the average, that might not go well because they might become lazy and just goof off for the 20 years. So you might want to hold them a little to a threat more close than that to say, hey, uh, you know, you need to keep working or you're going to lose your job and get evicted. Uh, you know, to motivate the work. On the other hand, if you enslave them, they're probably not motivated enough in the other direction. So those are the kinds of considerations I'd say probably they are free, but probably they do have to rent their brains and, and pay rent and they have to you know, take out loans to get training and initially marketed and they have to pay off those loans. And that's probably my best guess for what would be the most productive and therefore what probably happens. Uh, um, what I love about this emulation version of, of, you know, intelligent, uh, human like machines versus the kind of humans will build software that's so intelligent that it will do, you know, whatever we want it to do, but we'll program it to make sure that it, you know, has some prime directive never to harm humans and all these other things where it's this kind of like, it's this kind of centralized, perfect utopia where humans can make the machines to just be these completely, um, you know, like emotionless work focused machines that do exactly what we tell them. This, this idea of human emulations is so interesting to me because I, you'd have a spectrum. I mean, not every, just like not every human is, um, the same at performing any given task or even has the same work ethic. Like you could theoretically have slacker, um, slacker robots who do the bare minimum that they can figure out how to, you know, rent the the server space that they need or do the things that they need to survive. But they're not that interested in doing a lot of work. You could have some that are overachievers who are just constantly working all the time and, and really get uh, pleasure out of that process. Um, this, this whole rich spectrum, I think opens the possibility for the likelihood of social norms and institutions much more similar to what we currently have than maybe you might expect uh, in a world where these sort of all-powerful, unfeeling um, <laughs> robots that are nothing right. like humans. So there's a famous saying, don't confuse a clear view with a short distance. So when we look into the future, we can see some things that will happen eventually, but you shouldn't assume that means they'll happen soon. So for example, you can see that eventually we will go out and colonize the galaxy, but that doesn't mean it happens next. You can see that eventually growth rates must be slowed down. We can't have exponential growth forever. That's also true, but it doesn't mean it'll happen soon. And eventually artificial brains might just completely displace human-like brains. That's not crazy, but that doesn't mean that'll happen next. So there could still be a whole nother era as interesting and complicated as our era that are dominated by human-like minds, minds like yours. And the M era book I've written is about a scenario like that, a scenario where things change a lot and it's enormously futuristic, it's dramatic, but it's an era still dominated by human minds. So who is the the closest? Are there is there work being done on this right now that's sort of, you know, what what's what's the cutting edge of attempting to emulate the human brain? Well, there are three key technologies that will be required, but they're all pretty far off. Honestly, the thing that's closest is scans. Uh, we actually have a decent scan already of a mouse brain. These three technologies are improving. Nobody's really put them all together, but it's not time for that. We're a long way off. So we still need to be working on developing these three technologies. I mean, some people have done rough attempts of seeing what it looks like if you try to combine some sort of model 
uh, of a cell with some sort of uh, structure that you've gotten from brain scans, but they're just doing little toy versions of that. They're not trying to do the whole thing. It's just too early. So the age of M, from my understanding, the book itself, and, and go check out the age of M, go to, go to Amazon, um, go, go find the book, go order it. Um, it's, it's not a, it's not a, you know, this is good or this is bad. It's a, this is what might happen if we are able to emulate the human brain. But, but personally, do you get excited about when, when you're putting this book together and you're envisioning the likely things that might happen in this era, does that excite you? Does it worry you? What is your sort of, uh, disposition towards it? Um, you know, I grew up on science fiction and I was always attracted to the idea of a more powerful, more capable future where our descendants could just do a lot more than we can do. Um, and that was always weird and changed in different ways, but just the idea that humanity would have a powerful heritage. And this is such a powerful heritage. In this scenario, our descendants are more powerful than us. There's far more of them and they are far, live far faster and they are capable more they would survive disasters more easily it is in that way a uh, set of descendants to be proud of on the other hand if you treasure some things about our current culture and our current ways of thinking you may be disturbed to see that your descendants think differently from you just like you think differently from your ancestors you may have told yourself that the reason you're different from our ancestors is we've all learned that your ways are the best ways and that might be a comforting little story to tell but it probably just won't hold up to the future when ways change a lot. When, when the environment changes a lot and the world changes a lot, your descendants will probably change in many ways, in many ways that deviate from what you're comfortable with. So I'm kind of more okay with that because I tend to just be impressed by the cultural plasticity of the human mind <laughs> to see people as being able to adapt to a pretty wide range of cultures and worlds and, and seeing them as okay. But if you aren't as, you know, encompassing or forgiving about these cultural variations, you may well be disturbed by how much changes that you now hold dear. Robin Hansen, uh, his new book is The Age of M. You can go to theageofm, that's E-M, dot com. It's on Amazon. Um, Robin, this has been absolutely awesome. Uh, I definitely want to have you back to talk about some of the, some of the many other areas that you uh, delve into. But thank you. Thank you for your time. Thank you for having me.